Welcome to Green Shoots, hosted by the Arbor Group at UBS. My name is Mike France. And I'm Jack O'Connor. Green Shoots is a podcast that focuses on the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the organizations that are aligned with these objectives. Today, we're excited to be joined by Jacques White, who is the Executive Director of Long Live the Kings. In the interest of full disclosure, I am currently a board member of Long Live the Kings, where I serve as the head of their finance committee. Long Live the Kings' mission is to restore wild salmon and steelhead and to support sustainable fishing in the Pacific Northwest. Prior to becoming Long Live the Kings' Executive Director in March 2010, Jacques served as Director of Marine Conservation at the Nature Conservancy of Washington and Director of Science and Habitat Programs at People for Puget Sound. He has served as a member of the Ecosystem Coordination Board of the Governor's Puget Sound Partnership and the Steering Committee for the U.S. Army Corps Engineers Puget Sound Nearshore Ecosystem Restoration Project. Jack, you and I have known Jacques for a few years now, and we've been chit-chatting about having him on the show and really looking forward to this interview. So without further ado, Jacques White. Jacques White, welcome to Green Shoots. Yeah, thank you for uh, joining the podcast today. So Jacques, can you tell us a little bit about Long Live the Kings and what the organization in general is trying to accomplish? Yeah, Long Live the Kings is a 36-year-old conservation organization focused on restoring wild salmon and steelhead and supporting sustainable fishing in the Pacific Northwest. We are a science-based organization. We try to make sure that all of the work that we do is based on the best available science. We work cooperatively with partners in business, in government, in tribes, in academia, and other nonprofit organizations. And we try to make sure that the work that we do is at the forefront of what's needed for salmon recovery and identifies new areas that have not perhaps been fully fleshed out or investigated. I'll talk about some examples later, but we're very excited about the place we find ourselves now and the opportunities that we have and also the challenges that we face. Great. Thanks, Jock. There are a lot of threats to salmon and aquatic life in the Puget Sound and Salish Sea. I'm wondering if you can describe a couple and, and which one poses the biggest challenge. Yeah, well, salmon face challenges that have been historically identified as things related to loss of habitat in freshwater and nearshore environment, things like hatchery practices that may have not been particularly well thought out or tried that may have been affecting wild populations. And then harvest management can also be problematic if not exercised with caution and thoughtfulness. All of these things have led to declines in salmon populations. But recently, well, within the last 20 years or so, we have recognized that marine survival of juvenile salmon and steelhead, in other words, the percent of juvenile fish that go out that return as adults has declined for pretty much most of the rivers in Puget Sound and the Strait of Georgia. And this is something that was causing declines in fisheries, declines for wild populations, perhaps resulting in listing under the Federal Endangered Species Act. And it's an issue that our managers were having a hard time coming to grips with. Long of the Kings recently put together a program with our friends of Pacific Salmon Foundation in Canada which is another nonprofit organization, to engage the talents and the energies and the people sort of across the spectrum in the two countries from agencies, again, Indian tribes, other nonprofit organizations in academia to look at this issue. And there are some key factors that we identified as being the biggest problems for salmon and steelhead, particularly Chinook and coho salmon. The biggest problems were lack of food, principally for Chinook and coho, and then predation, increased predation as a result of 
increasing populations of harbor seals in the basin for all three species. And for steelhead, that was probably or continues to be probably the primary source of weak marine survival, at least for populations that are leaving rivers in the Strait of Georgia and Puget Sound. There are some contributing factors as well to poor survival, and those include things like loss of estuary habitat for Chinook in particular, contamination in lower rivers in industrialized areas like Tacoma and Seattle and perhaps Vancouver, disease in some populations of steelhead in Puget Sound and probably coho and Chinook up in in British Columbia, and then interactions between forage fish populations, which are things like herring and smelt, and harbor seals as predators and coho and chinook as predators on things like herring when they're small. And so abundant forage fish turns out to be really important, both as a direct food resource for chinook and coho. And also when those populations are abundant, it provides an alternative prey item for harbor seals and they tend to eat the the highly abundant, small, fatty forage fish instead of juvenile salmon and steelhead. Those are some of the factors. and, And we have developed a number of strategies to address those coming out of a long study called the Salish Sea Marine Survival Project. That's super helpful uh, background and uh, information. So kind of following on that, obviously what you've been kind of discussing more closely relates to the Pacific Northwest, Puget Sound, Hood Canal kind of area. So are the issues that you've kind of been discussing that are facing salmon in the region, do you find that those are kind of applicable to other fish species in different parts of the world? Yeah, I think I think there are there are some clear similarities. One of the interesting things about salmon that is in some ways unique is that they occupy habitat from what we call the snow caps to the white caps, all the way from upper river basins all the way out into the central Pacific Ocean. So some of the elements that are affecting salmon in watersheds would affect other species that are obligate freshwater fish like trout or some some other species like that. So where we look at habitat problems, where we look at changes in temperature, changes in freshwater input, dam interruptions in migratory corridors, those could all affect other fish species around around the world. Out in the marine environment, changes in the marine environment due to climate change, changes in temperatures, changes in the timing, type, and abundance of food supplies for young and growing salmon will also affect marine species. So things like in the Pacific Ocean, like pollock and hake that are important commercial species could, could be impacted by some of the same things that affect salmon out there. And then, um, you know, fisheries in the open ocean, particularly things like unregulated, underregulated, or illegal fishing could definitely affect salmon both directly or as a bycatch and affect other species as well. I want to focus on one thing that you said just a couple seconds ago on dams. So I grew up in eastern Washington, Tri-Cities, and there's a major dam on the Snake River Ice Harbor Dam. And Whenever we'd have a a visitor from out of town, sometimes we'd take them over there to go check out the dam and the fish ladder. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on dams and the impact that they have on fish populations. And do you expect to see that as a motivation to push for dam removal at some point? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Thanks, Michael. So Long of the Kings has just completed a five-year strategic plan, and there were four main areas that we chose to look at over the next five years or even longer. One of those is looking at a diversity of Chinook and salmon populations in general and making sure that we support as much life history diversity so that those populations can be resilient in the face of changes like climate change or changes in habitat condition and changes in the freshwater flow could be resulting from dams. The second one is trying to look at marine survival 
and addressing some of the challenges that we identified in the larger Salish Sea Marine Survival Project. A third element is education and making sure that the public knows about what's going on with salmon. So I guess this podcast could be an example of that. And then the fourth one is looking at barriers. And we have identified things like dams or things like the Hood Canal Bridge or things like the Ballard Locks that are specific barriers that can affect an entire population in one spot as having the greatest promise for restoring salmon populations. And they could be wild populations that are spawning above the dam and have to migrate past the dam twice in their life, or it could be hatchery populations that also have to do the same thing. We worked very specifically on a project in the Nooksack River called the Middle Fork Dam of the Nooksack, where a water diversion dam was providing essentially no salmon or steelhead migration access uh, to 16 miles of fairly good habitat in that river. We helped get funding for that to be removed. We thought that was a big success. I think folks are almost all familiar or know something about the two dams that were removed from the Elwha River that are allowing access now to 85 miles of salmon and steelhead habitat in a national park. So it's, you know, it's as good a habitat quality as you can find in the Pacific Northwest. And that that is, a I think, a big success. In terms of the Snake River dams, which we're hearing a lot about now, I was part of a governor's Southern Orca task force, Southern Resident Orca task force, which looked at issues that were limiting salmon production and other insults for our Southern resident killer whales. And there was a fair bit of conversation in that exercise around the four lower Snake River dams and the lower Columbia River dams for that matter. And the notion was, um, should we be pushing for rapid removal of the lower Snake River dams? That is a more complicated situation than the Elwha Dam. Those are managed by the Corps of Engineers. They provide access for marine transportation to inland ports. They provide hydropower to the Bonneville electrical grid, and they provide irrigation for local agricultural activities or regional agricultural activities. So they have a lot of what we perceive as beneficial uses, but they are also, ever since those dams have gone in, steelhead populations and spring Chinook populations in particular have declined significantly in the Snake River. The challenge that that presents is that as the climate warms in the West, the habitat that is locked up or is is interfered with for access by those four lower Snake River dams is some of the best and most promising habitat in the entire salmon habitat area in the West. Those are high elevation rivers. They're going to remain cool longer compared to other areas. And so maintaining or increasing access to those areas will be important going forward. During the Southern Resident Orca Task Force discussions, we learned that if you were to increase spill through the four lower Snake River dams and the four lower Columbia River dams, which means not really increasing the flow out of the reservoirs, but just increasing the amount of water that goes over the top of the dam rather than through the turbines, you could double the smolt to adult survival for Spring Chinook. Columbia or Snake River Spring Chinook is considered a very important food resource for Southern resident killer whales. If you were to increase the spill in the lower Columbia River dams, four lower Columbia River dams, and remove the four Snake River dams, we learned that you could again double the smolt to adult survival. So essentially, if you increase spill in the lower Columbia, 
and removed the four lower Snake River dams, you could increase the survival of Spring Chinook by four times, which would be really important. While this is a big challenge and there's a lot of issues to work through, there clearly would be some benefits for salmon and there clearly would be some benefits for people that depend on salmon in the watershed, whether they're tribes or recreational fishing interests or tourism, and also clearly for killer whales. Great. And uh, something you kind of touched on a little bit earlier on in your response to that question was the Hood Canal Bridge. And I know that's something kind of a big project uh, Long Live the Kings has been working on for years and has some state funding essentially to get in there and do some mitigation there. Can you talk about what exactly is going on at the Hood Canal Bridge and why it's so important to Long Live the Kings? Sure. So Hood Canal is an important salmon rearing area. There are a number of rivers that feed into Hood Canal. On the west side, they largely go through U.S. Forest Service lands or the Olympic National Park. So they are they are poorly developed and therefore have great potential as habitat for salmon and, and steelhead trout. But unfortunately, the steelhead population in Puget Sound is now listed as, a, as threatened under the Endangered Species Act, and that includes Hood Canal steelhead. There is no essential fishery allowed on steelhead and hasn't been for quite some time. There are no production hatchery programs there that could be you know, interfering with wild fish recovery. And those populations are struggling and they aren't recovering. And Long of the Kings has been engaged with a number of partners, including NOAA, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, the Skokomish tribe and others, trying to figure out what is going on with the steelhead and, and trying to recover that population with very, very careful and I would say somewhat experimental, but very creative ways to use hatchery fish to increase the population. But we weren't seeing the kinds of increases that we were hoping to see. So some of our partners at NOAA decided to try to tag with acoustic transmitters steelhead that were leaving Hood Canal rivers and track them through the marine environment. And what they found is that there were generally a big dropout in the numbers of transmitters in juvenile fish that made it past the area around the Hood Canal Bridge. This got us to thinking, wow, that might be a real problem. It turned out when they replaced the, I think it was the eastern span of the bridge, they happened to have transmitters and fish. And when the bridge was out, half of the bridge essentially was out of service for a year, we had the highest survivals of juvenile steelhead. That caused us to think that maybe we should look at that more carefully. We got some funding from the Washington State Legislature to put a a number of uh, receivers around the bridge and study in in very close resolution what happened to juvenile steelhead when they got to the bridge. And what we found is that two years in a row, we had just below and just over 50% loss of juvenile steelhead right at the bridge. And some of these transmitters had temperature probes in them and also depth probes so we could see what was the the swimming behavior of the probe throughout its life of or the, the transmitter throughout its life of service in the canal. And what we found is that when when the transmitters got to the bridge, they stopped swimming like steelhead and started swimming like another animal, like a seal. And actually the temperature went up. So that's a pretty clear indication that it's a warm-blooded predator that's that's eating them. They um, they then would stop moving after a period of time, which meant they probably were deposited on the bottom. And so that was a pretty clear indication that we have a problem there. Replacing those bridges is very expensive. They have been redesigned from the original design to have a longer lifetime. They're on, you know, on the order of 50 years to 100 years, supposedly. So are there some things that we can do now that could enhance steelhead survival at the bridge without you know, ripping it out and putting in a new several billion dollar facility? 
So we have been, we got an, went back to the legislature and asked for some funding to look at some solutions and uh, got some funding in, in the 2021 legislative session. And we're now working with uh, partners and some contractors to identify some devices that we can put that allow steelhead to swim past the bridge in one pass. The problem for steelhead with the bridge is that they migrate in, in marine waters at the very surface. They're, they're no deeper than three feet. And the bridge itself extends down 15 feet with concrete pontoons, and they perceive that essentially as a wall. Some of them eventually swim under or get sucked under the bridge on an ebb tide, but most of them pass back and forth at the surface at the bridge and pile up there, which makes them a, an easy access prey item for seals. And since an outmigrating steelhead is essentially a two-year-old rainbow trout, they're a really nice size as a prey item. So we are going to be putting those devices in the water and testing them in this coming fall and then putting them in the water in, in the spring of 2023, and we will be evaluating steelhead survival there. But to put the whole problem in some context, that 50% mortality is on the same order as the mortality of juvenile steelhead migrating out of the Snake River through all four lower Snake River dams and all four of their reservoirs and all four lower Columbia River dams and all four of their reservoirs where the mortality rate for uh, juvenile steelhead is around 70%. So that one bridge uh, in Hood Canal is causing a similar level of mortality as four dams in their reservoirs in the Columbia and Snake Rivers. That's interesting, Jacques, and it sounds like it's a great deal for the seals. Yeah, that, well, the seals have had it pretty good. I mean, <laughs> I like to say we ran two experiments back to back. The first experiment was during the, the early part of the 20th century, there was a bounty on seals and people were removing as many harbor seals as possible from Puget Sound and the Strait of Georgia. And then with the implementation of the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the early 1970s, we ran another experiment where nobody removed any. And I think there probably is no time in the history of human occupation of, the, of North America that people weren't removing seals at all. So we went out of balance in one direction, and now we've kind of gone out of balance in the other direction. And I know that our friends in, in tribes are thinking about ways that they might reinstitute a take, but at some kind of sustainable level that would match the management practices that they were carrying out before European colonization. So another uh, thing you mentioned just a few minutes ago regarding the Southern resident killer whales. I know one of the motivations for increasing the salmon population is to help the endangered orcas. And just would like to get a status update. What is the current state of the health of the orcas in Puget Sound and the Salish Sea? Well, the short answer to that question is it's not good. And the challenge is that there are both low numbers of orcas and there are also the demographics are not positive for their for their future. There are few reproductive age females in the three pods, the J, K, and L pods. So that that's a critical limiting factor on their ability to repopulate. So what we really hope is that we don't lose any. And what we also hope for is more births of juvenile females uh, to replace those females because orcas live quite a while. They can live as long, almost as long as people. There's There were some that we thought lived into their 80s or even over a, a hundred. Males tend to live less long than females, but they still live on average 40 years, 40 or 50 years. So so these are very long-lived, but their reproductive stage, like humans, is not for their entire lifetime. So, so we may have females in the population, but not all of them are reproductive. 
So that's a concern. The second, the three issues that we were looking at in terms of threats to southern resident killer whales as part of the governor's task force were one, toxics, that if there are, there are toxic material in the marine environment, it could be concentrated through the food web and then killer whales end up storing it in their blubber. And if they go through a starvation phase, they release that and it can make them sick, lower their immune response, et cetera. The second issue is noise. There's a lot more shipping traffic and certainly more whale watching activity around the the whales, both commercial and non-commercial. And is that interfering because they use sonar to feed? Is that interfering with their feeding behavior and their their efficiency in terms of finding food? Um, And then the third issue, which I think is the most important issue, is the lack of appropriate food. And our southern resident killer whales eat about 90, something like 98% salmon, and that about 80% of that diet is made up of Chinook. That's their preferred food. And you can understand why it's the largest and fattiest of the salmon. So with with the same amount of effort to catch a Chinook versus a coho, you're going to get 50% more food. Now, the limitations there are several. We we still put a lot of hatchery fish in the in the ocean, and I don't think that the, the southern resident killer whales distinguish between a hatchery and a wild fish, as long as it's a Chinook and they can catch it, I think they eat it. But there are some key factors here that are limiting their production. One is the abundance of salmon, you know, just how many salmon or how many Chinook salmon in particular are coming back to their rivers or to hatcheries. The second is the timing of when that happens. Are they coming back to their rivers at the time that the orcas expect them to? The third is location. Are they coming back to the places where they used to come back to? And then the fourth is size. And you can't discount this. And I think you know, anglers think about size a lot because they're, they want to catch the biggest fish and win the derby and brag to their friends. But from an orca's perspective, it's way more important than that. If they have to spend X amount of calories or energy chasing a salmon and the salmon that they catch is an 18 pound salmon, that's a totally different reward than if they catch a 35 pound salmon. And Chinook salmon, the average size on the West Coast has declined by about 50% since 1970s. So they are typically now out chasing smaller and smaller fish. So some of the recovery strategies to support killer whales are related to increasing the diversity of the salmon populations. In other words, when the salmon are are coming back to rivers and making sure that they're coming back to the places where the, the southern resident killer whales expect them to be. There's a big hunting area on the west coast of San Juan Island because of the physical structure of the area and the number of fish that go by there particularly on their way to the Fraser River in Canada. Identifying places like that and making sure that salmon are going to be there when they expect them is important. There's also some experiments underway, at least for hatchery fish, to increase the size at return of the salmon by adjusting hatchery rearing practices to encourage salmon to come back later in their life cycle when they're bigger, spend more time in the ocean, and also increase marine survival so there's more of them to come back. So there are some strategies that are being employed. There's also been a significant ratcheting back of Chinook fisheries in British Columbia, even in Alaska, Southeast Alaska, and in Puget Sound in order to reduce competition with southern resident killer whales, at least before the fish get back to their terminal river. All right. That's super helpful information. And, and I would imagine a lot of our listeners at this point, you know, they have a better understanding of all of the issues facing kind of marine life in the area. If they wanted to get more involved, what kind of volunteering opportunities just for the general public are there with Long Live the Kings? 
Yeah, thanks for asking that. We have some opportunities. We have a, a hatchery on Orcas Island where we are now actually doing some experiments with our Chinook population to try to increase the size of return and increase the survival. We're also actually having some environmental changes there that are forcing us to think about managing that population differently. And some of the things that we're hoping to learn there, we think are translatable to other facilities and maybe even wild populations. So if you happen to be in the San Juans and you would like a volunteer opportunity, there's opportunities to help work there. We are working in a place called Lilywap Creek on Hood Canal, where we have a steelhead recovery program. We are both sampling wild steelhead populations in, in the environment to see whether the recovery actions we've taken are working and also actively rearing fish there. And so if you'd like an opportunity to help out at that place, working with steelhead, we would love to have your help there. You can also, I mean, I would encourage folks to look at other opportunities. There are what are called lead entities in each one of the watersheds around the Puget Sound, all 14 watersheds that have Chinook populations. And those are groups that are focused on recovering salmon habitat, and they get funding through something called the Pacific Coastal Salmon Recovery Fund. And in Washington State, that's distributed through the Washington Salmon Recovery Funding Board. You can call your local lead entity. You can find out where those are by going on the Salmon Recovery Funding Board website and identifying which where the lead entities are. And they have habitat restoration uh, projects that are ongoing, with, and, and you can find in your area where there are some availability to help out. I would also encourage you to go look at some of the work that's been done. I mean, there are some really exciting projects, whether it's opening up uh, the Nisqually Wildlife Refuge down between Lakewood and Olympia in the Nisqually River Delta to a, a major project in Marysville that was done by the Tulalip Indian Tribe and, and I believe uh, the city of Marysville, really like a 400 and some acre habitat restoration project. These are great places to see what kinds of habitats juvenile salmon like, and also at certain times of the year, a great place to see birds. So there's a number of things that you can do. And, and if you want, you can contact us at info at lltk.org and get information about specific opportunities at our organization as well. Yeah. And Jacques, and I know somebody uh, on this podcast will be volunteering with you come Monday. So hopefully we can gather some more volunteers for your organization with the podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Been very generous, both with the, the pre-work and during the interviews. So great to have you on, Jacques. Yeah, thank you, Jacques. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And thanks, you guys, for doing this. I think it's an important project. Mike, that was certainly an interesting discussion. And one thing I appreciate about Jacques is his ability to explain complicated issues in a way that's easy for the average person to understand. We covered a lot of ground here, including climate change, Puget Sound region, salmon and orca populations, civil infrastructure design, just to name a few. What was your biggest takeaway? You know, you're right. Jacques just has a fantastic way of making things very complex and simplifying them down and I think my biggest takeaway is the infrastructure aspect to and the impact that's having on the salmon population by extension, the orcas. You, we talked about the Hood Canal Bridge and the Lower Snake River dams. These assets are incredibly vital to this region's economy. And, you know, in a perfect world, we would have known about the implications to the salmon and to the orcas and would have redesigned those things perhaps differently. What about you, Jack? 
Yeah, I certainly agree with all of that. Uh, I thought the discussion around climate change in particular was very uh, helpful for me, knowing that there are similar impacts across multiple fish species globally that are somewhat similar to each other in terms of the challenges that they're facing, but also that there are certain easier fixes uh, if there is the political will in terms of some of the infrastructure that you mentioned. But the fact that uh, in order to really solve this problem, we're going to need a lot more expeditious action globally. And kind of the takeaways between some of the challenges facing every uh, fish population, but also some of the ones that are local and what the differences are, I thought was very nuanced and uh, very helpful for my understanding of the problem on a a major level. Yeah. And you're right. It feels so close at home because the things that we're talking about are just going on a few miles away from where we live and work. And yet that's not the only fish population that's that's endangered around the globe. And, And I'm guessing there are probably some pretty close similarities between what's going on in the Puget Sound and uh, other places as well. So that concludes today's episode. Thank you for joining Green Shoots. We look forward to more of these discussions with thought leaders and organizations working to promote the UN Sustainable Development Goals. For now, so long, farewell, Alvitas, and goodbye.